In 2014, a 4 a.m. SWAT raid on a home in San Gabriel resulted in Officer Sean Diamond's death and the arrest of David Martinez, who was ultimately charged with murder. From Crime Story Media and E1 Entertainment, this is Night Raid. I'm your host, Molly Miller, and this week we're covering David's story, his account of what happened during the raid and how his narrative about the shooting changed over time. And we're going to unpack aspects of that story using interviews, testimony reenactments, and jailhouse and police recordings. We can't, we cannot. Can you understand this whole part? Is that... I'm worried that would, my words may be twisted. It's you two, and again, an officer was involved in this, and I'm not. We're not twisting anything. We're not twisting anything. Stick around for the second installment of Night Raid after this. When you strip away all the formalities of a detective interview, all the sirs and ma'ams, and we're here to find the truths, and where were you on the night ofs? It all boils down to one question. What's your story? Your story. It's subjective and, in most cases, incomplete. Humans just can't see everything from every angle. That's not how the eye works. But your story isn't simply a laundry list of observations. It's personal. Somewhere between experiencing something happening and committing it to memory, the story becomes a part of you. However, the story's life cycle doesn't stop there. Stories aren't static, they're four-dimensional, retold and remembered again and again and again. And over time, as you gain more information, as your perspectives evolve, as you grow, so does your story. In our first installment, we covered the narratives on both sides of the Martinez front door. Remember that in the hours after the raid, members of law enforcement concluded that none of the officers had discharged their weapons, and that it was David Martinez who had shot his father in the arm and Sean Diamond in the neck. But they didn't just think David Martinez pulled the trigger. Many were certain he did it with intent. They believed he was a violent gang member who saw an opportunity to murder an officer and deliberately took his shot. Meanwhile, the Martinez family, specifically David's parents, Guadalupe and Arturo, believed that David was innocent and that he wasn't even in the living room when the shot occurred. According to their narrative, in the chaos of the raid, it was the officers who shot Arturo and accidentally shot Officer Sean Diamond. But the most important story in this case is one you haven't heard yet. It's David's. We need to hear from David Martinez to know what he saw that night, what he heard, and if he shot Sean Diamond. The first time David told his story was in the seconds after the SWAT operatives broke through the front door. This is a recreation of that moment, based on David's testimony and Rick Aguiar's statement to detectives. Coming out. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I thought you were the Mongols. I didn't know you were the police. David said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 
I thought you were the Mongols. At that point, it wasn't a full narrative. It was just two apologies and a statement. But we'll keep returning to those ten words because they are at the heart of David's story. And no matter how much time passed or what new information David received, that small part of his story stayed the same. As for the rest of David's story, it changed. In the hours and months following the SWAT raid, it evolved, not just once, but repeatedly, at least three times in the ten days after his arrest. The fact that David's story changed can be interpreted in one of two ways, and each shades David's character in a completely different light. Interpretation number one is the most obvious, the judgment that most of us have when we see a suspect change their story. It's, oh, he's guilty. And now he's scrambling, trying to find the best lie, the one most likely to keep him out of prison for the rest of his life. Interpretation number two, David didn't change his story on purpose. Instead, he was piecing together a traumatic event, shifting his perspective as he spoke to different people and gained new information over time. So how do we decide which interpretation is correct? In this installment, we're going to follow David from the time of the shooting to a phone call with his mother 10 days later to a pivotal moment years after his preliminary hearing. We're going to listen to every version of his story. I'm Molly Miller, and this is Night Raid. In the immediate aftermath of the shot, David Martinez was restrained by Officer Rick Aguiar and then led outside of the house onto the sidewalk. David was kept separate from his family, and he was worried about his father, who had been shot in the arm. David later testified that he asked an officer if his father was all right, and, quote, he told me that he was more worried about the officer who got shot in the face, end quote. Approximately 30 minutes later, David was placed in the back of a San Gabriel cop car that belonged to Officer Edward McGeehee. Interactions between David and this officer were recorded on the police car's dash cam. Sir, what do you want me to tell you? Don't, don't spray when an innocent person, bro. I'm spraying anybody. This was this. No, it's not. He's just an officer, man. Happened and this was this. The police car dash cam that usually faces out the front windshield was swiveled backwards to film David. In the footage, he jostles around in the back cab and cranes his neck to speak with the officer. But McGeehee doesn't have much to say to David, partially because he doesn't really know what's going on. Officer McGeehee's role in the SWAT operation was marginal. He was on patrol in San Gabriel the night of the shooting and was called in to do traffic control. But now, he found himself talking to a suspect in an officer-involved shooting. McGeehee was later interviewed by detectives from the LASD. The following is a recording of that interview. The detective from Montebello that seemed to kind of be in charge of that end of the 
situation came to me and someone else that was standing with me and he said, can we put this guy in your car? And I said, sure. And so at that point, he had uh, flex cuffs on and they brought him to my car and they put him in the back seat of my car. Did you have any contact with this male in the back seat? He kept yelling at me through the window. Hey, what was and he yelling? He wanted to know what was going on. He wanted to know why we were in his house. And I said, you're asking the wrong guy. I'm not in your house, okay? I'm from San Gabriel. And then he said, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. They came in my house, they came in my house. I said, dude, I didn't come in your house. That's not me, all right? We're going to juxtapose McGeehee's statements to the detectives with the audio from the police car's dash cam. And then he said, um, you'd have done the same thing. They were coming in my house. I was just defending my family. You would have done the same thing, sir. You're pleading your case to the wrong person. I'm telling you, I did not mean to do that. I'm protecting my family. And then he asked me if the officer was okay. And I said, I don't know. He's at the hospital. I don't know anything about his condition. Wish I would have got shot, man. Fucking nightmare. Is the officer okay? No. I don't know. Fuck. And then he said, so I didn't want to hurt him. I didn't know he's a cop. You know, you guys didn't say anything. And I said, bullshit. I was a block away and I could hear them yelling police outside your door. You guys did not announce your presence. I don't know. That's fucked up, man. You guys don't do that, man. I heard them screaming and yelling. No, yelling, but they weren't saying police. They didn't even hear yelling, just banging on the doors, man. I expect when cops come to my house to do something like that and say police. He started complaining that the flex cuffs were too tight. He couldn't feel his arm. He couldn't feel his hands. I said, I am not taking you out of the car. I am not taking that off until the other guy comes back. Ah, ah, fuck. Sir, this fucking handcuff, I swear it is. I don't know what it is, but it's making my, the pain in my arm get worse, sir. Okay, I'm telling the guy that you're coming from. He don't treat me like an animal, sir. Not you, not you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, man. And it seemed he, he kept trying to engage me in conversation, almost to the point that he was trying to distract me for some reason. So I really became worried what this guy's problem was. I mean, you're surrounded by 30 or 40 cops. You have flex cups on. You sit and you shut up. And he is running off at the mouth. I'm not a bad person, man. I'm not here to judge you. It's not my job. Well, you fuck, yeah, you seem like I'm guilty already, man. I don't have an attorney. Fuck it. I didn't fucking do that, man. No. No way. You, you guys are liars, man. I was in my house, in my rights. What do I gotta lose now? You gonna fuck me up? Fuck me up. I don't care no more. Because you guys are already lying. I already told you guys are trying to do it. You, you guys broke the law tonight. At 5.58 a.m., Officer Edward McGeehee turned on the radio in the patrol car. Silky tones of NPR filled the air. 
we have a kind of a controversial ballot measure on bear baiting that's drawing a, a fair amount of advertising. That's right. He said bear baiting. Now, at Election Day, would ban the use of things like jelly donuts to lure bears out of the woods so hunters can shoot them. At 6.44 a.m., another officer arrived at the car. He informed David that he was being detained, but he wasn't necessarily under arrest, at least not yet. The officer explained that they needed to do a test for gunshot residue on David's hands. The radio in the car is so loud at this point in the recording that it's difficult to hear David's response. This episode contains a few recordings in which the dialogue is almost unintelligible. In each instance, we will play the recording and then repeat what was said, according to the official court transcript. Here's the recording of the exchange between David and the officer who checked his hands for gunshot residue. We're going to stand you up. We're going to call the GSR for gunshot residue. Quote, I have residue on my hands. I shot that gauge. Two hours and 44 minutes after the SWAT operation, David's story is that he didn't know it was the police at his door and that he fired his shotgun to protect his family. At some point the morning of the shooting, David started to experience pain in his chest and arms, so the fire department was called to check on him. They cut his zip cuffs and replaced them with handcuffs, which, according to Officer McGeehee, made David more comfortable. At approximately 7.45 a.m., David was loaded into a different vehicle and transported to the Montebello jail, where he was placed in a holding cell. A few minutes later, a jailer escorted another man named Luis Garcia, a.k.a. Catfish, into the cell. A hidden camera across the hall filmed the Spartan space, the bunk, the toilet, and the sink. In the recording... David sits on the bunk, and Lewis takes a seat on the toilet, fully clothed. He wrings his hands. Like David, Lewis was a member of the Mongols Motorcycle Club. It turns out, David's home wasn't the only one raided that night. SWAT teams served search warrants at six other Mongols residences. David leans close and whispers to Lewis. At first, his words are so quiet that they're unintelligible on the recording. But then he grows louder. Here's what he says. No, I, I thought it was fucking gangster. I didn't know who the fuck it was. I thought it was fucking gangsters. I didn't know who it was. I shot a hura in the face, dude. Hura is Spanish slang for cop. When the police first entered the Martinez home... David said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I thought you were the Mongols. But now, David is telling Lewis that he thought it was gangsters at his door. Possibly because Lewis is a Mongol himself. It's the gunfire, and my dad's like in front of the door. They were just like, just trying to open the door. I don't know who the fuck it was. As soon as I seen the gunfire, I fired, he fired, but he hit my dad. After a while, Lewis responds. They did it to all of us, bro. That's all of our stories. They did it to all of us, bro. That's all of our stories. Fucking. They didn't say they were fucking cops. A little while later, a voice filters through the air vent on the wall. What? 
That's David's friend Raul Carrera, another Mongols member whose home was raided by a SWAT team that night. He's in a cell on the other side of the wall. David climbs closer to the air vent, stepping one foot on the bunk and one on the toilet seat. He shouts through the vent, telling Raul his story. Hey, they come to my pad, bro, and I, I was laying down, bro, and I hear fucking someone start fucking like pulling the door, right? David was lying down, and he heard someone pulling the door. So I grabbed the gauge, bro, naturally, because I don't know who it was. He grabbed his gauge, his gun, because he didn't know who it was. And, and as I'm fucking walking towards the door, dog, my dad's by the door, and I told my dad, wait, 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 because nobody said anything, dog. He's just fucking straight yanking on the door, bro. And my dad opened the door. As he walked toward the door, he saw his dad by the door. And David said, wait, wait, wait. But his dad opened the door. I see a gun, bro. And despite, by that time, when I see the gun, like he let off and I let off. David saw the gun and, quote, he let off and I let off, end quote. It seems that David means they both fired their weapons. I hit him in the face and he hit my dad in the arm, fool. David's bullet hit the man with the gun in the face. And the man's bullet hit David's dad in the arm. Bro, if I wasn't running with a boot up, bro, I wouldn't have fucking done that, bro. Quote, bro, if I would have known that it was a hura, bro, I wouldn't have fucking done that, bro. End quote. This is the first time David gives a complete narrative of the incident. All of it is consistent with what David said in the cop car, that he didn't know who was at the door and that he shot to protect his family. But it doesn't match Guadalupe's story, or Detective Jeff Cochran's. Guadalupe said in her interview that David wasn't even in the living room when the SWAT operatives entered the home. She told detectives that she believed the injured officer was shot by another policeman. Detective Cochran insisted that none of the officers fired their weapons. He believed it was David who had accidentally shot his father in the arm and Sean Diamond in the face. At 1.08 p.m., an officer took David out of the cell to speak with two LASD homicide detectives. Their conversation was recorded by an overhead camera and took place in a small interview room. The space was furnished with three stiff-looking chairs, the type you might find in the waiting room at a dentist's office. On the recording, David shuffles into the room, and one of the detectives gestures for him to sit. The other officer retrieves a key and takes off David's handcuffs. Then, the two detectives sit down, open their notebooks, and get to business. Are you ready, Pun? Yeah. All right. Uh, my name's Detective Ray Lugo. My partner, Sergeant Joe Ramirez, was from Sheriff's Homicide. Detective Ray Lugo was the lead investigator in the shooting of Officer Sean Diamond. He's a compact individual, short and bald, with a blocky frame. During his time with the LASD, Lugo developed a reputation for being persistent. A mother of a homicide victim whose case was worked by Lugo once said, quote, God sent Ray because he never quits, end quote. Uh, presently, we're at Montebello PD in the uh, detective interview room, along with a suspect, David Martinez. Uh, but prior to talking to you, Dave, my partner's going to read you your, I'm gonna uh, read you your, your Miranda, Miranda rights. Miranda rights, okay? 
Sergeant Ramirez reads David his Miranda rights. If you're a fan of law and order, or basically any other police procedural, then you've heard these a million times. Number one, you have the right to remain silent. Number two, anything you say may be used against you in court. Number three, you have the right to the presence of an attorney before and during questioning. And number four, if you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed for you free of charge before any questioning. After David has been read his Miranda rights, Detective Lugo straightens up and starts his interrogation. You want to talk to us about what happened out there? Okay, this is the point where any criminal defense attorney would strongly advise David to invoke his right to remain silent. We know police are trained to obtain confessions and admissions. Even if you're innocent, they can use inconsistencies in your statement as evidence of guilt. On top of all that, David is suspected of shooting a cop. At the time of the interrogation, Sean Diamond is still on life support at the hospital. But the prognosis is grim. The detectives know this is a potential death penalty case. The stakes couldn't be higher, so it benefits David to keep his mouth shut. And he does. Kind of. I kind of do, but I think in the best interest of, 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 my, of my, my, my life, that I might need to talk to an attorney because... I don't, I've never been through this, and I'm just just say this. They didn't, knock, they didn't even knock on my door. They didn't announce themselves. They just pulled the door, and I wouldn't know who it was. And my dad was like in front of okay, me. Okay, well, hold, hold up. We can't either want to talk to us or, or, or you don't want to talk to us. All right, if you need an attorney. But uh, if, this is your, your chance to talk to us. David puts his head in his hand. All right. So it's up to you. It's up to you. You can't. Officer, we can't. Is, we cannot. No, but can you not understand this cool part? Is that I'm worried that would my words may be twisted. It's you two, and again, an officer was involved in this, and, and I'm not. We're not twisting anything. We're not going to twist any we're, word. We're not twisting anything because we're 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 recording this, so nothing's going to be twisted. Okay. So whatever you say and I say will come out. So you want to talk to us? Nothing's going to be twisted, okay? David relaxes a bit. Sergeant Ramirez gives him a piece of paper, a waiver that states he's been advised of his rights. David signs it. If you make a statement, we're going to ask you some questions in regards to your statement, okay? We just want to clarify things, okay? Okay. And if you don't want to answer our questions after you give your statement, that's up to you, Okay. But we're here to clarify things and to find out what happened. If you want to give us a statement and tell us what happened, go right ahead. Okay, can I ask a question though? Like, why were you guys even raiding my house? What was the problem? We're, 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 we're from Shearer's Homicide. So we're, we're here in regards right, to what there, happened there. was there. no reason for my house to be raided. And I don't know too many of the specifics as to why they were there at your house, but they had a search warrant for your house, okay? So, uh, Go ahead, and uh, what happened this morning? David clasps his hands and takes a deep breath. He says he's going to keep his right to remain silent, that he needs to talk to an attorney. I'm going to keep my right to remain silent. I need to talk to an attorney. 
Detective Ray Lugo leans forward, pulling his chair closer to David. This guy, this officer, he could die. Okay? He could die. Dude. Okay? He could die. And your dad was shot. Yeah, I know. Okay. So, by, by, by an officer. You, 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 you want to talk to us about this? Can you give me a couple minutes to think about it? I'm we're we're standing right here. We're, thank, we're, we're here. Yeah. But we can't uh, 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 wait too long. We can't can, can I get my phone call first? No, we, we need to me, talk. Can, can you give me that much? Give me, let me get my phone call first to see where, where I'm at. Detective Lugo lets David use his cell phone. David first tries to call his common-law wife, Sandra. She doesn't answer, so he calls his sister, Cindy. That's the number? Yes. Thank you. Hey, Cindy. Cindy answers. She tells David that the family has an attorney coming for him. Okay, thank you, sis. I, I love you, right? Thank you. Tell my mom I'm okay. It is going to be okay. I didn't do nothing wrong, dude. I wouldn't have done that if I would have known it was cops. But I'll talk. My, my, that told you? Hey, all right. Let's go. All right, I gotta go, sis. I'll call you in a little bit, okay? Because yeah, I guess you don't answer the phone when I call you, okay? All right, bye. Love you too. Bye. David hangs up the phone. The mood in the room shifts. So what happened? They said that for me to wait until uh, my attorney's on. All right, bro. Okay. Your attorney, I'm gonna tell you something. You're in the most serious trouble that anybody can ever be in, okay? Detective Lugo walks out of the room and asks for an officer to put the handcuffs back on David. As the cufflinks clink, Lugo addresses David one more time. Yeah, we're just trying to be truthful, bro, but nobody, nobody I, I, is more in trouble, I, 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 more I in trouble than I fucking mean, you, bro. You're I know, in fucking but, but, trouble. But, but you're, you're in fucking trouble. And okay. this is your chance. You're, you think your attorney could do it and save it's you? Not that, he can't bro. fucking save you. Yeah, 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 it is. He's seeing you want me to talk to you, man. Dude, I, nobody's nobody's looking out for me. You got you weren't there, bro. Okay, well whatever. And I'm, I'm not telling you what, what happened was that, but you weren't okay, there, bro. Okay, well whatever. You, you, you talk to me like that, definitely. When David Martinez returns to the jail cell, he paces, sits, stands, stretches. He talks to another Mongols member in a neighboring cell. A little while later, David's friend Raul Carrera asks a simple question, one that could radically change the outlook of David's case. Quote, hey, they shot first, end quote. Quote, he's seen the barrel, and and then I seen a barrel, and then I don't know, bro. End quote. David spent the night at the Montebello jail. In the early morning, he called his mother Guadalupe. This is an English translation of their phone call, portrayed by actors. David, don't accept something you didn't do, okay? No. 
A lawyer came to talk to me already. Don't. Don't accept it. Because I saw things. There was only one shot, and it was them who did it, not you, okay? When I tried to open the door, they were the ones who did the shot on the door, and they were the ones who hit you, dad, and accidentally, they were the ones who killed the officer, not you. Don't take the blame. Up until this point, David only knew that the officer who was shot was in the hospital. This is his first time hearing that Officer Sean Diamond died. He wasn't... He died? Yes, he died. Don't... Really? Yeah. He died this morning. Oh, Mom. It's gonna go bad for me, Mom. It's okay. Don't worry, my son. There is one truth. There is one truth. Mom, my life is... And believe that... Mom. What? My life is over, Mom. No, no, no. Don't say that, David. Mom. Don't say that, David. Have faith in God. God is very big. God is very big. And God is with you, David. This next part of the conversation is critical in understanding how David's story collided with his mother's and his father's version of events. While both David and Guadalupe think that David is innocent, they believe that for different reasons. David believes that he's innocent because he shot his firearm in self-defense, unaware that the police were at his door. Guadalupe believes that David is innocent because he didn't fire his shotgun at all, and that Sean Diamond was accidentally shot by another officer. Their stories collide when Guadalupe starts to say that she heard the police announce themselves at the door, and David asserts that the announcements didn't happen, or at least that he didn't hear them. They didn't say anything. They didn't... No. I could just... It sounded like someone was trying to come into the house. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. They didn't say. No. They didn't... They didn't do... No, 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 no. But, but... No, wait a minute. They did. They did say... No, Mom. No. No. Yes, David. Mother, no. Mom, listen to me. No. Listen, David. When they fire... Hold on. When they fire a shot, it makes kind of a, like a flower in the hole, right? No, but they didn't announce themselves as police officers. At first they didn't, but then they did. Before David can sort out this discrepancy in their stories, Guadalupe is on to the next subject. She describes the hole she found in the metal door, a hole she believes was caused by an officer's bullet or explosive device. Me and your dad were behind the door, okay? And let me tell you something. That when it makes the hole and in a shape of like a flower, right? Yes. Well, the flower was made and then, then the hole came from the outside, not from the inside. Had it come from the inside, the flower would be outwards. Then all the bits would be outside, but no, they were inside David, okay? There are many possibilities to see your innocence, David. Moments later, Guadalupe gives the phone to David's sister, Cindy. Their conversation is in English. This is the actual recording of David and Cindy speaking to each other. Just keep your head up, be positive. Don't talk to nobody, nobody, nobody. Man, Don't talk to nobody about the case. Away. What happened? He passed away. I know, I heard. But there's, there's nothing you can do. You didn't do it. My mom and my dad 
for witnesses. And they were gonna make it seem like I did it. They 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 were gonna make it seem like I'm fucking a bad person. What you know the truth? You're a hardworking dad. You're working for your kids, and you're a good person. Bring my life over, fool. It's not though. It's not. This is the beginning of you battling and fighting for for your rights. Cindy was right. It was only the beginning of the battle. David needed to piece together a cohesive story from his fractured memory of the raid if he ever wanted a chance at freedom. Throughout David's phone conversation with his mother and sister, he never agreed with Guadalupe's narrative of the SWAT raid, the story that David didn't fire his weapon and Sean Diamond was accidentally shot by another officer. But he didn't explicitly deny it either. Regardless, Guadalupe's words seemed to affect David's conception of the raid. After the call, David's story shifted. At approximately 2.30 p.m. that afternoon, David was loaded into a van to be transported to the L.A. County Jail. In that van were several undercover officers dressed as inmates and a confidential informant taking part in what's known as a Perkins operation. The audio from the Perkins tapes is really difficult to understand, so we're not going to play a lot of it. But there's one part that's critical to hear. It's when the undercover operatives ask David what happened to the officer that was shot during the raid on his home. From my understanding, bro, I think his partner next to him shot him, bro. Why you guys exchanged fire? Why? You guys exchanged fire? My dad got hit too. My dad got hit too. They hit my dad. I shot, but I don't think I hit him, bro. My dad told my mom he seen that when they pulled him out of there, the other cop was telling him, Sorry, bro. I'm sorry. In less than 48 hours, David's story changed from I shot a cop in the face to the officers shot their own man and one of them said, I'm sorry. But that wasn't the last time that David's story shifted. David Martinez appeared in court for his arraignment on October 30th, 2014 at the Clara Shortridge Fultz Criminal Justice Center. The judge read David's charges, capital murder, with the special circumstance of murder of a police officer engaged in his duties. If convicted, David could face life in prison without parole or the death penalty. Eight days after his arraignment, David made another call to his mother from Men's Central Jail, in which he altered one more small yet significant detail in his narrative. This is an English translation of their call, as portrayed by actors. Hello? Hello? What's up, son? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Son, I was so nervous. I didn't know what button to press. You are innocent, and everything is going to be fine. Don't worry. My rifle never, never, never fired, okay? I know, son. I know. I saw everything, son. I saw everything, okay? 
In the months that followed, David pled not guilty to the charges against him, and he got a new lawyer. According to a source close to David, the private defense attorney was too expensive for the Martinez family. Without a private lawyer, David was assigned a public defender to handle his case, veteran trial attorney Brady Sullivan. Sullivan is an experienced litigator who doesn't match the stereotype of the schlubby PD with an ill-fitted blazer. He's tall and fit, with a gray crew cut and square rim glasses. His suits are meticulously pressed. As discovery for David's case rolled in, Sullivan untangled the evidence with a fine-toothed comb, compared it with David's statements about the raid, and began to develop a legal strategy. Eventually, Sullivan received a copy of Sean Diamond's autopsy report, and he gave a copy to his client. That's when Brady's relationship with David went south. In April of 2015, David told his friend Robert about the fallout during a call from Men's Central Jail. The following is a reenactment of that call based on the court's official transcript. Yeah. Well, I got the autopsy report finally back, and it... It goes with everything that is being said. You got hit from behind. Of course. On his neck. Of course. It came out through the front of his chin, you know? And they're there, but they want, they want to blame it on me. Them saying that I did it. They staged a lot of stuff in the scene, you know? And I don't know, man, like my PD, he's good, but he wants me to claim something that I didn't do, you know? And I'm not going to do that. All right. Well, yeah. I don't see how you can do that. Well, fuck. It's so fucked up. That's why I'm worried about you having this guy as your attorney. That's my problem with this whole thing because I... Yeah. I would assume that they... That's what they want. Yep. And I was like, you're crazy. You're telling me to say something that I didn't do. How am I going to say something that I didn't fucking do? No, I can't. If you did that, what would you get? He wants to call it self-defense. Okay. And if you did that, what would you get? He says we would go to trial and that would be up to a jury. According to the autopsy report, Sean Diamond was hit in the back of the neck. The evidence seemed to support the Martinez family's belief that Officer Diamond was accidentally shot from behind by another SWAT officer. But after reviewing the discovery, Brady Sullivan came to a different conclusion. In Sullivan's narrative, David fired his shotgun and his bullet accidentally hit his father in the arm and fatally hit Officer Diamond in the neck. But David's actions were in self-defense. He was not aware that the intruders were officers. He had reason to think that his home was actually being invaded by members of the Mongols Motorcycle Club, with whom he was having a conflict. And therefore, David was well within his rights to protect himself and his family. That narrative did not sit well with the Martinez family. They were desperate for an attorney who would stand by their version of the SWAT raid, an attorney who would tell their truth. So they left Brady Sullivan, pulled their resources, and hired another private criminal defense lawyer. Enter Edward Escada. Escada spoke perfect Spanish and had an office near the Martinez household. Most importantly, Escada agreed with the family that David didn't shoot Sean Diamond, and he was willing to challenge the narrative of the police investigators. 
But the defense attorney faced a monumental challenge. He had to account for the evidence at the scene, evidence which told its own fragmented story. When the SWAT officers entered the Martinez residence, they found a Mossberg 12-gauge shotgun that was now in evidence. The firearm was loaded with one-ounce lead Remington slugs, and one slug was missing from the chamber. They also found a spent shotgun shell inside the home and shotgun wadding, the bit of fiber or plastic that sits between the gunpowder and the slug inside a shotgun shell. It was up to Escada to convince a judge to dismiss the case despite those findings, to argue that there wasn't enough evidence to go to trial. If Escada failed, David Martinez would return to jail, where he would likely spend years waiting for his day in court. David's preliminary hearing took place on July 28 of 2015, nine months after the SWAT raid on the Martinez home and the death of Officer Sean Diamond. We have recreated audio excerpts of the hearing with actors reading transcripts of the proceedings. Judge Mary Villar presided. Edward Escada rose from his chair to question David's father, Arturo Martinez. Mr. Martinez, good morning. Good morning. Showing you a picture of People's Tube. Can you take a look at that screen door depicted in that photograph? The screen door was the metal security door at the entrance to the Martinez home. Do you see a hole in that screen door just above the doorknob or lock area? Yes. The picture portrayed a jagged hole the size of a tennis ball, roughly two inches above the locking mechanism. It was the same hole that David's mother, Guadalupe, described to him in the jail call we heard earlier in this installment. The metal on the screen door surrounding the hole was bent inwards, suggesting that whatever penetrated the door moved from the outside in. Was that hole in the screen that you see in People's 2 there before the incident on the morning of October 28th of 2014? No. Do you know how that hole got in the screen? It was when I tried to open the door and the explosion was heard from outside going inwards. Mr. Martinez, based on your observation of what you saw, was it your belief that whatever object hit you came through that hole on the screen door? Yes. This line of questioning set the foundation for the first part of Escada's story. It suggested the explosion didn't come from David's shotgun. It came from the porch where the police were standing. But Escada still had to contend with Sean Diamond's autopsy report. Under cause of death, the medical examiner listed shotgun wound to the neck. Not just any gun, a shotgun. The report challenged the narrative that David's shotgun did not kill Officer Diamond, telling alternative scenario. When Officer Rick Aguiar took the stand, Escada revealed his theory. Isn't it true that one of the officers had a Mossberg 12-gauge shotgun? Yes, sir. There was another shotgun. Not just any shotgun, but the same kind as the one David had inside the home. What officer had the 12-gauge shotgun? I don't recall, sir. And isn't it true that the Mossberg 12-gauge shotgun had a buckshell or birdshot opposed to a slugshot? Correct? 
No, sir. It's it's a less lethal shotgun, so it has a beanbag round, so it's less lethal. It has a beanbag? Mm-hmm. It's, it's painted green. It has a green handle and green stock. And that is what you're calling the Mossberg 12-gauge? On our team? Yes, sir. So it's been modified? No, it... It, is, it has a green charging handle and a green stock to let everybody know that it's a non-lethal shotgun. It's used for beanbag rounds only. A beanbag round is a 12-gauge shotgun round in which birdshot pellets are encased in a cloth, like a beanbag. The effect of the cloth is that the shot does not penetrate the target, but rather hits with blunt force. Sean Diamond was not killed by a beanbag shot. According to the medical examiner, Sean Diamond's cause of death was a shotgun wound. David Martinez was the only man on the scene with a shotgun, loaded with lethal ammunition. The only reasonable conclusion seemed to be that David shot Officer Diamond. Edward Escada's narrative had completely collapsed. But why did the hole in the metal security door bend inward if the shot came from inside? The prosecution presented a possible answer when Deputy District Attorney Andrew Kim examined Officer Rick Aguiar. The following is a reenactment of his testimony. And before you had prepared or attempted to breach this door, were any announcements made? Yes, sir. And after those announcements, did you hear or see response coming from inside the home? At the time, Sergeant Hess gave us the order to go ahead and breach the door. And I have a tool, we call it a Thor's hammer. It's a sledgehammer with a point on it. My responsibility was to poke a hole in the screen door. At that time, Sean and I grabbed the larger tool and insert it in the hole, and we we're standing across from each other. He pulls the pin, and it's it's two-count motion, so one go in, and as we are doing the in motion, I hear the doorknob being manipulated. Let me stop you there. I'm going to direct your attention to what has been marked as People's 2 for identification. Is this the front door? Yes. Do you see that hole in the screen door in People's 2? Yes, sir. And did you make that hole using that pointed end of that hammer you were describing? Yes, sir. According to Rick Aguiar, the hole in the door came from his hammer. He punctured the security door in order to attach the punch-pull device to break the door's lock, which is why the metal was pushed inward. But how exactly did the prosecution explain Sean Diamond being shot in the back of the neck by someone in front of him? Andrew Kim questioned Rick Aguiar about the subject. You just described for us that Officer Diamond had removed the tool from the hole that was created. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Where was Officer Diamond or what direction was Officer Diamond facing when he did that? He was stepping back and away from me and I was stepping forward. And Officer Diamond, which way was his face or body facing at that point? His face was back towards the street. His back was completely exposed to the door. Aguiar claims that Diamond had to turn around to discard the punch pull. The prosecution's story was as follows. Officer Aguiar and Officer Diamond used the punch pull to break the security door open. Then David Martinez fired his shotgun, and the bullet hit his father in the arm and proceeded through the open wooden door and the open security door. As Officer Diamond turned away to discard the punch-pull device, he was hit by David's bullet in the back of the neck. The story still leaves some lingering questions. Here's a big one. If that narrative is true, then why didn't the officers return fire? Why was there only one shot? 
Reporters asked the same question in the wake of the incident, and they were told by the sheriff's department that the officers didn't fire because they saw David's father in the doorway. The single-shot narrative was also supported by both sides of the preliminary hearing, by Guadalupe Martinez, Arturo Martinez, and Rick Aguiar. According to the prosecution's story, that one shot came from David Martinez's shotgun. With the evidence presented and statements submitted by both parties, all that remained was a ruling from Judge Mary Villar. It appears to the court from all of the evidence presented that it is convinced the charged crimes were committed. There is sufficient cause to believe that Mr. Martinez is guilty of having committed that. As such, he will be held to answer. David returned to jail to await his trial. Then time passed. Days, months, and years spent in Men's Central. And then on October 18 of 2017, David's story changed one last time. He fired Edward Escada and asked the court to reappoint public defender Brady Sullivan. David later testified that he returned to Sullivan because he was ready to take responsibility for his actions. He was ready to accept that in the chaos of the SWAT raid, he accidentally shot his own father and accidentally shot Officer Diamond in self-defense. Sullivan was the one defense attorney who stood by his story, his interpretation of the evidence, even when his client rejected it. Brady had devoted his life to being a public defender, but now he was called to face what seemed to be an impossible task. He had to convince a jury that a man who shot a police officer from approximately five feet away could still be not guilty of murder. That's coming up on Night Raid. I'll tell the You can find this entire Night Raid series wherever you get your podcasts. Night Raid is a production of Crime Story Media in partnership with E1 Entertainment. Our executive producer is Carrie Antholis. I'm Molly Miller, the host, producer, and writer of this episode. Associate producers are Brittany Bookbinder, Lexi Notabartolo, and Aaron Koronek. Audio editing by Chris Terracone. Rick Schnapp did our mix with additional audio editing by Tyler Newhouse. Music and sound design by Eldad Guetta, with Foley assistance by Elia Guetta, and scoring assistance by Nikki Hemmingson. Additional music by Half Gringa. Tonancina Sparza is our casting director. Voice actors in this episode were Alex Alfaro, Eduardo Pulido, Cheryl Umania Bonilla, David Saucedo, Avery Lee, Carrie Antholis, Salvador Lopez, Blanca A. Soto, Gilbert Reynoso, and Emeka Iwuagwu. Our title track is Alimony by Half Gringa. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Night Raid. Thanks for listening.